One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze. Relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Uh, It is a glorious Wednesday. Uh, We are right in the middle of party conference season, so there isn't any Prime Minister's questions today. However, there are plenty of questions going around, uh, particularly in the corridors of the left-wing types, about Suella Braverman, the Home Secretary, about the speech that she made yesterday in the United States of America, in which she basically said uh, that we have to be very careful in this country of who we let in to this country and why we want to make sure that we know who we are letting into this country and we know what they're going to do when they enter this country and that we should in fact always make sure that the people that we do grant uh, entry to this country are not here to disrupt, who are not here to do damage, are not here to do harm, not here to commit crime and not here to water down British culture. And I think that is a perfectly valid speech to make, some perfectly valid views to have and completely and utterly in tune with the large majority of people in this country. I say three cheers for Suella Braverman for speaking up for the people of Great Britain. But the Daily Mirror doesn't like to think so. The Daily Mirror calls her poisonous. They say that Suella Braverman uh, has made a nasty new low in the migrant speech that she makes as she attempts to distract from her own failures. She said uh, They said that she made a vile attack on asylum seekers in a bid to mask her own dismal failures. In a speech in America, she basically said being gay or a woman in a hostile land should not be enough for refugee status. Well, how is that vile? How is that by any stretch of the imagination anything other than reality? How could anybody say that that was an offensive way of speaking? How can anybody say uh, that just because you come here and claim that something's happened to you and you get believed by some idiot from the Home Office who doesn't actually care who you are, what you are, what you represent, where you come from and where you're going, at the end of the day, It is absolutely right to say that just because you claim that you're being harassed in a country, we should somehow give you a free house, uh, give your children free school meals, give give you free access to the NHS, and you can live here as long as you like and never have to pay tax. Well, I'm sorry. That particular free ride is over and done with. Thank you very much indeed. 0344... 499-1000 499-1000 is the number. We're going to be talking to William Clouston, first up this morning, leader of the Social Democratic Party. We are, as we said, uh, in party conference season. We'll find out what his main party politics are on things like HS2, where it turns out uh, woke inclusivity is more important than actually building a railway. Uh, the cost of the project could hit 180 million billion pounds, right? Billion with a B. Um, and they've just decided to blow it. They've just decided, no thanks, we don't actually want to do it. But instead of actually uh, making sure that the railway line goes somewhere uh, where somebody wants to actually travel to, no, that's not going to happen. What, what we are going to make sure of uh, is that loads of people are very, very woke indeed. Uh, also, we'll be talking about lockdown harms to children. Apparently, it was preventable. 
Well, we could have told you that. Every, every single time we tell you something should have done, uh, been done a different way, it turns out that's exactly right. It should have been done a different way. 0344 499 1000. We're going to find out why there are rats all over a particular part of East London as well. I'll tell you why. Because the bins haven't been emptied for about two weeks. It's an absolute horror show. If you live anywhere near Tower Hamlets, you'll know what I'm talking about. Uh, but it might be bad where you are as well. You know how we like to talk about rats on this show. You know what they're like. You see them. They're huge, absolutely huge, massive, giant rats. This is Talk TV. I'm Mike Graham. It's the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Let's get it on. Welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. It's the same old story, isn't it? Back to the drawing board, because you can't talk about refugees without being labelled racist. You can't talk about limiting migration without being called some kind of bigot. You can't say that we are worried about British culture, even though we are worried about British culture, uh, because that would be somehow xenophobic, right? And what she said, Suella Braverman, over in America, saying the past 25 years, immigration has been too much too quick with too little thought given to integration and social cohesion rather than the failed dogma of multiculturalism. Well, let's talk about the failed dogma of multiculturalism because as I said to Julia Hartley Brewer, when I lived in America, when I lived in New York, New York was a melting pot, literally, of people from all over the world. I met people there who had come from Russia, people who had come from Iraq, people who had come from Iran, people who had come from Venezuela, from Mexico, from Argentina, uh, from South Africa, uh, from Kenya, Literally all over the world, Australia, Britain. But everybody who came to live in New York City wanted to be a New Yorker and wanted to be an American. And I don't get that sense from the people who are coming from all over the world to currently live in Britain. Let's ask William Clouston what he makes of it all. William, very good morning to you. Morning, Mike. Do you think there is that sort of difference between what we're seeing now in terms of uh, immigration, whether whether it's legal or illegal, whether it's on visas or not on visas or coming on boats? You know, I don't get the sense that the people coming to this country from parts abroad want to be British. Um, Some do, some don't. Um, I think our political class has been reckless over this issue um, for decades, actually. And if you ask a a Labour politician uh, who's been in government or a Tory, what was your, what is your plan for integration or even assimilation? Uh, there'll be silence because there isn't one and then never has been one. Um, you've got to, a society has to have some unifying values. You have to have, from an immigrant's point of view, you have to have a chance to bind into something. And again, uh, too many cultural leaders and uh, politicians have just not been willing to assert what our values are, mm. what we are as a society. So consequently, people come here in very large numbers and set up their own little groups and own little societies, and you get uh, twilight multiculturalism, where we might meet at, meet at the office or at the factory, and then we go home to our own uh, little zone. And if you don't believe me, just go on to the 2021 census on the ONS, ONS and have a little look at the map and see how segregated this society is. Mm. And has it always been segregated, or is it getting more segregated? Well, certainly the levels of segregation in some of the Northwest, uh, you know, Bolton, Blackburn, uh, Oldham and so on is yeah. astonishing. It's yeah. almost like by street. People uh, have a natural instinct to, to want to be with people that share their values and they set. And so there's a sort of a sortative thing going on. But um, just more broadly, Mike, I think the problem with this whole issue is that 
politicians have not wanted to talk about it. They lack the vocabulary to talk about it. And it's just neglected. And they, and they you know, we have just the wrong vision. The mm. Tories think this country is a shop, just open for anyone that wants to come in. And if we need more workers, just import them. Let's not bother trading our own. And the Labour Party, too many of the Lib Dems and the Labour Party think this country is an NGO or a charity. Mm. It's not. It's a, it's a, it's our home. It's where we're building our lives. Yeah. And you can't have that attitude and have a successful outcome, I think. No, and I think we've become slightly drunk on sort of um, the social enterprise of public money funding all sorts of things that it shouldn't be funding. You know, mm. the biggest growth sector, I think, in this economy now of ours uh, are charities. Um, people, I, I know so many people now who work for big charities. It's incredible. I mean, London is full of them. Um, and then you've got the sort of um, projects, the think tanks, the sort of, you know, um, quangos that operate around the country. So much money is being funded by the public purse. And I think we've lost sight of what Britain's actually about. Britain is about small business. Britain is about, you know, entrepreneurship. And Britain is about, you know, being a success at something. And at the moment, we're a success at nothing. Nothing really works because we are all sucking on this kind of, you know, uh, publicly funded teat, it would seem. I think there's a lot in what you say, Mike, but uh, I'm looking at the thing more broadly. I think if you have a vision of what your country is, if you think too many, as I say, Lib Dem and Labour politicians think this country is there to solve the world's problems. Yeah. That's what they think. That's right. how they view it. They don't want to govern in the interests of people in Leeds or London or us. They're thinking their heads are full of all sorts of quite childish utopian ideology, thinking they can go around sorting the, the world's problems out. They can't. They really can't. Mm. And the actually, Braverman's speech was very interesting. I supported it because what she's done is she's opened up the debate mm. Realism. To, to, this is realism. How, not how the, you'd like the world to be. Braverman is, is concerned with how the world actually is. Yeah. The real world, millions, probably over a billion people, would come here if they could. And we just can't have that. Yeah, I mean, that is... That is part of the problem, isn't it? Because, you, as you say, there is this sort of response which is almost triggered every single time she says anything. And I don't understand why she is so vilified by uh, commentators and by the press and by the media, almost as though, you know, she has no right to speak about immigration like that because she herself is the product of immigration. Well, you know, who well, made that rule up? Well, that's ridiculous. I've seen some very foolish comments by people like John Sopel on social media. Well, that's, the only comments John Sopel makes are the foolish yeah. ones. I mean, it's really, it's risible, this. He's, you know, implying that she is a product of multiculturalism. Perhaps she's a product of, of assimilation, actually, uh, I would argue. Anyway, he, he he's saying that she can't say it and he brings her race into it, which is absolutely ridiculous. The fact is, anyone at all that raises this issue, we, in the SDP, we've been arguing for several years now that the post-war protocols are not fit for purpose. Any system that gives literally hundreds of millions of people the right to settle in your country is not is not going to work. And I think in the West, we're crying out for a country to be a beacon and say, no, we're, we're a democratic state. We will decide who comes here and under what circumstances, and we will enforce our border. Unfortunately, we don't have that. I mean, you look at Lampedusa... That is an invasion. Yeah. And if you don't think it is, you don't know what an invasion is, I'm afraid. You're not being honest.
Right, and it's only going to get worse. I mean, and already the Italian government have sought the help of, of you know, NATO. They've, they're asking for military assistance to actually block the boats. Because I don't know if you saw it last week, uh, or sorry, yeah. the week before last, when I was when I was last here. There was mm. an incredible piece of footage of boats just advancing on Lampedusa. And you must have been able to see about 10 boats, all carrying large numbers of people, you know, at least 100 in each boat. And it was, all, I mean, it was almost like a military precision attack on a beachhead, you know, because they were all yeah. heading in the same direction. They were all about to land. And you just thought to yourself, where does this stop? How do you stop it? And the thing that I also found incredible to discover last week, talking to my sister who's, uh, who lives in the States, is that they've now, they're now starting to see people crossing the Mexican border into the US from sub-Saharan Africa. So they're actually going over to South America and getting into America that way. Yeah, no, I mean, it's it, it, honestly, Mike, the migrant crisis hasn't really started. I mean, you know, this will be, unless our leaders wake up or unless we elect some people that actually have a view of the world that has some correspondence to reality, this will just get worse yeah. and worse. And actually, some of the politicians, like the mayor of New York, one minute they say, let's be a sanctuary city yeah. and, and do all this narcissistic, mm. Uh, virtue signalling, and the next minute he his hotels are full, his tourist trade is wrecked, and New Yorkers are saying, "Come off it! What about us?" And people and, and New Yorkers are moving out, you know, and yeah. they're, so they're going to lose their tax base. They're going to become shelled out cities, like many mm. of America's cities became in the nineties when I was living there, where you just found nothing there because everybody yeah. had moved out to the suburbs. They'd become rat-infested, crime-infested centres of, of ghastliness. You know, nobody wanted to live there. And certainly people didn't want to raise a family there. Yeah, and this is the cause uh, when, you, when you're run by people that just don't get it. Mm. I mean, at the SDP, we often look back to a successful state like uh, Singapore and we ask ourselves, what would Lee Kuan Yew do? Well, yeah. I'll tell you what, Lee Kuan Yew would not put up with this. No. A sensible-run society, a democratic society... And most people on the on the on the polling, Mike, are with us. Yeah, I think something like four percent of of the country think that immigration's too low. I'm not sure what they're taking. Yeah, but um, you know, that's just so, Gary Lineker and his mates, isn't it? Yeah, sixty percent. I mean, sixteen percent think it's about right, and sixty-five yeah. percent and rising think it's far too high. So it's a democratic issue. We decide who comes into a democratic state. Yeah. I, as I say, I, I've I've wanted some a mainstream politician, uh, you know, major politician, to get behind the the reality of of, of reforming the post-war protocols for years, and Braverman set, stepped up and done it. Good for her. Mm. Stay with us if you would, William. We've got lots to talk about, including HHS2 uh, and, lots of, and lots of other things as well. This is Talk TV. We're talking to William Clouston uh, from the Social Democratic Party. We'll be back with more from him and myself after this. Online on DAB Plus, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Lots for us to talk about. At least uh, we should kick off as well, William, with uh, the latest from the world of HS2, which seems to go from uh, sort of the ridiculous to the even more ridiculous. We got a story this morning uh, in, after the news that they're probably going to kill off the route to Manchester, having already killed off the route to Leeds. Uh, it now turns out there's about 40 staff in charge of HS2, paid at least 150,000 a year um, and the outgoing boss earns something like 450,000 a year and I mean I was struggling talking to Kevin O'Sullivan earlier this morning to work out what it is that they're actually doing for that well they're not doing very well Mike this is well, they're not uh, doing very much presumably it's a disaster this whole thing yeah. um, it's uh, something is very very wrong 
the public ought to know that to date this is costing over 250 million pounds per mile. Uh, and if you compare HS2 costs to other public infrastructure projects of a similar type in Europe, in France and Italy and Germany, uh, it's literally almost a, an order of magnitude yeah. more expensive. And they have to, they might be very well paid, but they're not doing very well on their budgeting. No. So I think you've just got to call a halt to this. The, the British public have to have some answers to right. why this is so grotesquely expensive. I, I, I It's just beyond belief yeah. now. Project has gone, and, and it's and it's a typical again. It's a kind of it's the white elephant's white elephant, isn't it? Because for for years, I think people have been saying it's too expensive. It's not really going to make much difference to the world of travel uh, at all. Certainly from between from Birmingham and London. But Andy Burnham has been saying this week that it makes it look as though um, the government doesn't care about people in the north of England. That it makes people in the north of England second class citizens. Is he right to say that? Uh, well, the, the way the Green Book, the government's uh, public infrastructure spending has worked over the last 20 years, he's got a very, very good case for that, actually. Um, you know, HS2 was originally budgeted at something like 30 billion. We're talking about 91 billion now. Lord Barclay thinks it'll be 180 billion. Right. It's totally out of control, but it won't. I mean, it won't even get to the north, this project. Um, it, it, there's no point in having, you know, spending 100 billion for a for a railway line that goes from Birmingham to West London doesn't even go into Euston. It's 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 a absolutely catastrophic mismanagement uh, of resources. Yeah. It'd been far far better off having HS3 uh, a good line or improvements to the lines uh, across the the uh, northwest. Particularly, you've got Liverpool to Manchester. The line is poor. Manchester to Leeds. The line is poor. Sheffield gets missed out. Yeah. Uh, you could have had a good system from Hull right across linking all those northern cities for a fraction of the cost. Yeah. Um, so it's it's a disaster. I think the main reason why they uh, won't exit is is undue influence on on the government by yeah. the big contractors, basically. Well, yeah, because the big contractors are presumably contracted to finish the job. So if they get told, well, we don't now have a job for you to finish, I don't know where that leaves everybody. Well, no, pulling out of a project like this would be, there's a lot of sunk cost, but there's a lot of sunk cost anyway. I mean, this is the problem as pride comes into it from the political class. They can't admit, they don't want to admit that they've spent several, you know, tens of billions and it's a disaster. But the thing is, Mike, rationally, you've got to look, are you willing to spend another hundred billion on this? No. Well, I mean, I used to say, I used to say without actually my tongue in my cheek that it won't be finished before I die. You know, because I think the the, the original, um, you know, sort of planned finish was 2040. But I don't think yeah. that's anywhere near happening. Well, it's just it's not going to go anywhere, Mike. Yeah. It's not going to go to Leeds now. You know, it's just it is a disaster. The opportunity cost of this money is sensible projects elsewhere. Yeah. Leeds, for instance, is the biggest city in Europe without a mass transit system. It has no tram. Right. The tram there, the super tram they're proposing is one and a half billion. Yeah. A fraction of this crazy I was only, I think I was only ever in Leeds once and I remember trying to get to the um, railway station and it was a real problem because it's mm. really difficult to get to in a taxi. You can't get anywhere near it. You know, there was just congestion everywhere. Um, you know, yeah. it's very badly constructed uh, for, for travel, basically, in the city. And they're meeting, funnily yeah. enough, Labour mayors are meeting there today to discuss what to do about this HS2 problem. Well, they won't decide it. I mean, you know, I, I think, you know, I'd expect Andy Burnham and 
Tracy Brabham to, to, to argue their case, fair enough. But they won't decide this. Uh, but nationally, it's just, it is ludicrous. They, the politicians have got to admit that this is a badly conceived project in the wrong place. And they've got to cut their losses, I'm afraid. This is only going to get worse if they continue with it. Yeah, and meanwhile, we find out, of course, that one of the things they've been very efficient at doing uh, is having a woke inclusivity guide. You know, as if that's not bad enough. You know, we've now got every single organisation in the country apparently making sure that they've they've got everything right on inclusivity, but they're not actually doing anything that they're supposed to be doing. Yeah, what are the public going to think, Mike? I mean, they, you know, they're wasting literally tens of billions of pounds, but they've produced a nice, I understand, 52-page diversity inclusivity uh, package yeah. just to make sure that the staff know all about unconscious bias and the rest of it. I really just, I'd like them to know about budgeting. Well, I mean, that would be nice, or indeed building an actual railway, because I don't even know, I mean, I was asking this question yesterday, how much of it has been what you might term in layman's terms completed i mean is there a railway line that goes anywhere at the moment are we going to see a railway line that is actually able to be traveled on at some point in the next 10 years if they decide to call a halt to the rest of it i mean i just don't know nobody seems to be able to tell me a lot of the infrastructure particularly towards london has been uh set down the track beds there you've got railway lines but you've got infrastructure crossovers and uh bridges and so on in there and that's been a lot of cost i mean if you go to euston at Drummond Street, Euston, you can see a lot of the infrastructure there has been uh, is, has been worked on as well. You know, right. so a lot has been done. But the key question is, if you're honest and rational, is is it worth spending another hundred billion not to get to Manchester and not to get to yeah. Leeds? And the answer is no. Right. It is absolutely absurd, isn't it? But we seem to find ourselves in these sort of cul-de-sacs all the time, you know, where somebody's started a project and then somebody else has carried on with it and then somebody else has inherited it. And, I mean, Mm. who knows what will happen at the next election? But if um, Professor Curtis is right and it's going to be sometime like next October um, before Mm. the clocks go back and if Labour do get in, you know, we literally still don't know what they would do about anything, really, do we? It's a headache for whoever is in. I mean, if Labour win, they've got several headaches and uh, I suspect a lot of things will get worse. Yeah. Um, no, I, I mean, I, as I say, uh, uh, if we were well governed, this would never have happened in the first place. You, you've got to compare these projects to how other countries do it. And I'm afraid this is this is off the scale. Five times the cost, six times the cost mm. per mile. No, I just don't buy that. There's something deeply wrong. Uh, the economist Michael Taylor has suggested that there may be mass corruption going on. and he, he doesn't know, but right. there should be an inquiry into this. Well, I mean, we always seem to have to have an inquiry into everything because when it goes wrong, we have an inquiry. And when everything goes wrong, you've got about a million inquiries and nobody's doing anything. You know, I mean, again, I said this, I think, the last time you and I spoke. We've got conference mm. season now, which blows a huge hole in the kind of business of government and the running of the country. And so we're supposed to sort of just swallow for the next three, four, five, six weeks. Nothing happening. You know, literally nothing. Yeah, but then we, we, we'd be better off not... I mean, it was a, as I say, I go back to the start, it was a terrible decision. This yeah. is not a sensible uh, allocation of resources yeah. for the yeah, no, I get that. But I'm just talking generally. Just generally yeah. speaking, it feels like we have this kind of rudderless government going on. Well, they're certainly, yeah, they're, they're, they've lost their way. Uh, they, that's, that's, I mean, there's been chaos the last year and uh, the Tories have got a lot of problems. It's interesting, actually, the electoral dynamics of this, because Nick Starmer is being found out. I mean, the polls are saying that he gets in and there's a you know, big majority to overturn. 
but he's on the wrong side of the argument. He's on the wrong side of the value divides with the British people on about three or four key things, Mike. You know, Europe, he's on the wrong side. Uh, he's on the wrong side on net zero. He's, he's on the wrong side on immigration. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so it'll be interesting. It could be very close, actually. You never know. Yeah, I think that's probably right. More right than wrong, as we say. Uh, good to talk to you, William. Thanks very much indeed. William Clouston, leader of the Social Democratic Party. Uh, Big says this, Mike, I agree with most of what you say, but with HS2, I disagree. If the project was halted, it would cost an absolute fortune to pull out of the contracts and make good the partial work already done. Um, and one here from uh, um, Anne, who says, uh, Ray HS2, who are these HS2 fat cats? They're not value for money. They've destroyed people's lives and businesses. These fat cats should be made to pay our taxpayers' money back. Who the hell are these robbing bees uh, put the pictures up says sue uh, and so, no sorry sue them says Anne. well I, I just can't understand how you're paying people something like 250,000 a year 150,000 a year 400,000 a year sometimes even 600,000 a year to do what at hs2 they don't do anything what are they doing does anybody know can we hear from you? 0344 499 1000 is the number. Coming up, uh, we're going to speak to Mr. Loophole, Nick Freeman, of course, uh, a man known to this parish. He's got some ideas about the Russell Brand case and what should be done about it. We'll talk about that coming next on Talk TV. The home of common sense. Talk radio and talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. I've got this um, from Robert in Staines. He says, hello, Mike. Nice to see you back. I've been thinking over what you said about the Loch Ness Monster. If there is a secret tunnel linking Loch Ness to the sea, wouldn't the surface of Loch Ness be at sea level? Which it isn't. Hmm. I don't know. There's a straight answer to that. Um, why would it have to be at sea level just because there was a tunnel out to the sea? If the tunnel was coming in underneath the loch, it doesn't really matter how high the water is, does it? Just a thought. Anyway, we'll probably talk about that some more. For now, uh, let's talk about another mystery. And it is the mystery, of course, of the Russell Brand case, because a very polarising case uh, has been uh, kind of created, if you like. Uh, an investigation by dispatches in the Sunday Times uh, accusing Russell Brand of all sorts of sexual um, assault, uh, rape in some cases, um, sexual uh, deviancy, all sorts of uh, bad behaviour. Uh, which he absolutely refutes and says he hasn't done, um, but he hasn't denied it in a way which has put anybody's mind at, at rest. And now there's a police investigation going on as well. Other people have come forward. The latest on it is that people say uh, that he should be demonetised from all parts of his business. So far, uh, he's still able to make money out of Rumble. Um, some people think he should be deplatformed altogether. I'm not one of those, actually. Uh, but let's talk to Nick Freeman, uh, otherwise known as Mr. Loophole, because he's got some thoughts on this particular situation. Nick, a very good morning to you. Good morning, mate. Thanks very much for talking to us. It's an interesting one, this, isn't it? Because, again, like most issues seemingly in the public domain these days, it, it's become very polarised. Russell Brand's fans think that uh, uh, no, you could never do anything wrong in their eyes. They don't really care what he's being accused of. They think he's being silenced in some way, shape or form. He says that, says there's a conspiracy against him. Others say, you know, if this man has behaved in this way, uh, he must be taken off the, out of the public arena. Um but you've got a better idea, I think. Well, it's, it's another a case of historical allegations. We've obviously got to be very careful what we say, <laughs> despite the fact that there's been pages and pages and pages um, spoken about the case. Yes. But th these, these are old cases. And th the issue, in essence, as it often is, is an, an issue of consent. Mm. Um, and so I, I've, I have a couple of ideas, and I've been trying to persuade the government for some time now to, to consider two things. So, first of all, these sexual allegations, the, the, the complainants, the alleged victims, 
um, have anonymity. They have lifelong an an anonymity. And it, it's, there's such a unique stigma associated with the allegations, as evidenced in the case of Russell Brand, as evidenced by the way he's being cut wherever we go. Um, th there's, th there's almost a sort of an inference of guilt which flies in the face of the presumption of innocence. So my view is there should be a level playing field as a general rule. And as a general rule, um, people who are accused of sexual allegations should be entitled to anonymity, lifelong anon anonymity, um, until such time as they are convicted, or in rare circumstances, if they feel, for example, the prosecution feel that there's a, a serial offender, such as Jimmy Savile, they go to a judge and say, look, this is what we believe, will you lift this veil of anonymity? It used to be the situation, um, and, and in my view, particularly because of the way social media works, we need to restore it. Uh, we don't want to have a trial by media now, and then if somebody is charged, and let's, look, let's not just say specifically Russell Brown, but let's assume some, after a lengthy investigation, in which, of course, in this particular case, you know, people are only coming forward now. Um, he, if he's ultimately acquitted, why should anyone know about anything that he's done if it's not unlawful? Mm. So my view is, first of all, lifelong anonymity until such time as you're convicted, unless the judge says otherwise. Um, and, and more pertinently, I think there should be a time limit on these allegations um, for a variety of reasons. So my view is, um, as in personal injury cases, there should be a time limit of three years mm. from the date of the allegation. Uh, obviously, that's always subject to waiver. Um, if, for example, the person was a, a child, um, then it would be three years from attaining adulthood. And there would always be a discretion vested in the trial judge or a high court judge if, for example, somebody was suffering from mental health difficulties, judge would hear applications say, I'm prepared to waive it. Um, and the reason I say that is, is several fold. First of all, um, for, for complainants, the idea is we want justice. We want people who have done bad, committed crimes to be convicted. And we don't want people who haven't committed crimes to have their lives ruined. So the advantage of three years is people come forward quickly. They're encouraged to come forward quickly. Uh, and obviously, if they do that, if they come forward ideally straight away, the police have the best opportunity of getting evidence. And it may be. It, it may be forensic evidence, it may be DNA, it may be um, evidence of recent complaint, um, it may be evidence of emotional distress. All these sort of things disappear with um, time. Um, so the longer, yeah. the, the greater the delay in making the, the complaint to the police, the less prospect you have of getting a conviction. Right. And I, I am sure, of course, guilty people are being acquitted, and I'm not suggesting any way, not talking about Russell Brand, I'm just talking generally. Right. The, the other point... The but other the other thing, let me just interrupt you for a sec. The other, I mean, I, I can understand you wanting to have anonymity for somebody who's accused of a sex crime. However, um, that depends on the circumstances in a way, doesn't it? Because if it's the police, if it's the police who are in charge of an investigation uh, and they've had a complaint made to them about somebody, they can keep somebody's um, uh, name out of the press. They can keep that anonymity and they can be ordered to do so. But if that complainant has not gone to the police and instead has gone to, say, dispatches or gone to the Sunday Times or gone yep. to, a, uh, you know, a newspaper, you can't really enforce it, can you? Well, it's much harder to enforce because there's an inference they've waived that anonymity by going forward. I haven't seen the program, the, the dispatches program, so I don't know. I suspect some people have remained anonymous and some people have been named. Once they lift that veil, then that, that their name remains in the public arena. Right. Um, and that, that's where it should be. And of course, it's difficult. The, the other point is this. Uh, from a complainant's point of view or victim's point of view, it, they, they'll overcome the situation. They won't be carrying this terrible burden with them for so many years. And if they come forward quickly, if somebody is guilty, 
not only will they be brought to justice much sooner, but they'll have less chance of committing crimes with everybody, with other people. Um, so they'll be brought to account, they'll know that, uh, and the police will have more chance of convicting. So the guilty are more likely to be convicted, um, the evidence will be assessed carefully, and if the evidence isn't there, the case disappears, and people who are innocent are allowed to get on with their life, with their reputation intact. Nobody should know about it, because, as I say, this, this type of allegation destroys lives. So we have all the, the, the pl social platforms, apart from Rumble at the moment, mm. pulling um, pulling the, the, the rug from under um, Brad Brand's feet. And yeah. the inference behind that is he's done something wrong. Right. We don't know. We're, we're not sitting in moral judgment. We're, we shouldn't be that sort of society. And no, that I don't think so. But some people believe that we should. And that's the interesting part of this whole story, you know, because I don't know whether you have a qualification to say anything on this front legally. But I wonder whether he's got legal recourse against some of these platforms that have sort of effectively demonetized him and said, you can't make any money through us. Well, uh, he, he may have a legal recourse. Again, I don't know what, what basis, whether there's a contract involved. But if, if somebody makes a false allegation against you, yeah. which obviously damages your reputation, there's no question here that his reputation has been, it's been produced. Mm. And that, that allegation is false. He has an action for libel for defamation. He has a huge action against people who make false allegations. Obviously, the, the social platforms, that's a different scenario. And I'm not sure what the, whether there's a contract there, what, what the specific arrangements are. So uh, uh, the honest answer is I don't know because I don't know what the small print says, if there is any small print. Yes, exactly right. Um, and that is the problem, isn't it, with this case? Because um, once the genie is out of the bottle and you then get more kind of what are, are, what are described anyway by the police as non-recent accusations from other people, which have, done, which have been enough apparently to, to kickstart a, a police investigation, you know, it's all sort of very, very long ago, isn't it? You have a television program, you have an article in the newspaper, and you then have the police literally advertising to people, will you please come forward and tell us what your dealings are with this man? Yeah. I mean, normally what, what should happen in society is we have a police force, we should trust that police force, they should be capable, and they do have specialist people to deal with these sort of allegations, and there are specialist prosecutors. And what people should do is if, God forbid, they are the subject, they are the victim of, of this type of heinous crime, they should go forward to the police immediately. The evidence should be preserved, the case investigated, and those brought to account are put before a court as soon as possible and are dealt with. But it's, it doesn't serve anyone's interest to sit on it for years and years and years, then go to the newspapers, uh, then maybe go to the police or maybe not. Mm. Maybe there'll be civil actions against Russell Brand. I don't know. It, we're turning justice on its head. And in my view, it, it's not for the betterment of society. Yep, absolutely right. Nick, good to talk to you. Thanks very much indeed. We've just got some breaking news here. A 15-year-old girl has been stabbed to death in Croydon. That's happened uh, this morning, according to the Metropolitan Police. A 15-year-old girl stabbed to death in Croydon, just the latest victim of knife crime uh, in the capital city here in London. We'll bring you more on that, of course, as we get it. This is Talk TV. On DAB+, on the app, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Good morning and welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. We've got breaking news for you this morning about a stabbing death in Croydon. A 15-year-old girl uh, has been stabbed to death in the latest outbreak uh, of crime in the capital city uh, in which we live. Uh, and I've got this from Mitch. He says, Mike, over the last 20 years, the population of London has grown by around 2.3 million. That's like taking pretty much the entire population of Manchester and dumping them in the capital. Somebody needs to explain to Andy Burnham that that is the reason why so much more money gets spent on infrastructure 
infrastructure in the south than in the north. And that's, of course, with regard to the HS2 situation. Uh, but we'll bring you up to date with all of the information we have uh, on that stabbing in Croydon. Uh, a teenager has been arrested uh, and um, uh, is currently being questioned. Is thought to be known uh, to the 15-year-old girl uh, who has been terribly, tragically stabbed to death just this morning uh, at around about 8.30 a.m. Uh, coming up in the next hour, we're going to be talking about the problem uh, with people who don't like what Suella Braverman has been talking about. Suella Braverman went to America yesterday. We covered it live here on Talk TV. Uh, the speech went out during Kevin O'Sullivan's show. And an awful lot of people have got an awful lot to say about it uh, here on Talk TV, as you would expect. She's basically warning about uh, the encroachment uh, of uh, British culture, the encroachment on uh, British traditions, the way that immigration has changing the face of Britain. Um, we just had a caller earlier who, uh, who was quoting from Rafe Haydel Mancou, who we, we speak to a lot on this show, uh, who said that in the last 25 years, immigration numbers have been higher than they had been in the previous 2,000 years. And when we see the numbers of people coming across the Mediterranean to Lampedusa from North Africa, when I was talking yesterday about uh, the numbers of people going through South and Central America from Africa to get into the United States of America, there is obviously a massive movement of people going on in this uh, world that we now live in, and something has got to be done to stop it. We keep hearing from people who want to say, oh, must manage it. It's not about stopping it, it's about managing it. We can't stop it. Well, let's talk to Robert Olds, who's a director at the Bruges Group, uh, to find out what he thinks about all of that, because it really has become not just a crisis, but an international global disaster. I'm going to call it that because that's what it is. Robert, a very good morning to you. Welcome. Glad to be on the show, Mike. Yeah, thanks very much indeed. I mean, we really are in a terribly bad place here. Nobody seems to be quite willing to admit it. Suella Braverman touches upon that, uh, particularly with the view, the view that, you know, our culture might be at risk, that people coming into this country in such huge numbers are liable to change the face of this country. I mean, these are statements of fact. These are things that are already happening. I was talking to William Clouston in the first hour of the show, who talked about parts of Britain which are now segregated and, beco and becoming more segregated as every month goes on. Indeed, there is a danger that we're importing so many people from, in a sense, failed states whose attitudes aren't quite as liberal in many cases as we have in this country. So we have a very good thing in Britain at the moment. We have a long history of individual liberty, a limited power of the state and people accepting other people in their, in their lives and the live and let live attitude. Some people from other nations don't share the values we have. Some cultures are not as liberal, as not as open and tolerant as we are. And with more people we take in, there is indeed a danger, and this is, can be seen. There have been indeed cases where migrants have come into this country and committed terrorist atrocities because, of course, they find that the freedoms that some people enjoy in this country absolutely objectionable. And this is something that's been spoke about by Home Secretaries for quite some time. David Blunkett, a former Labour Home Secretary, spoke about the problems with social cohesion. That there's so much immigration into some areas that they cannot literally cope. And people who have previously may well have been very tolerant will be less tolerant going forward of, of, new, of new arrivals. There comes a point where a critical mass is reached where things can no longer be acceptable to those who are already here, those who, who already enjoy the benefits of this country, 
And taking in more people, of course, it has an effect on the economy. It lowers wages for the for the least well off. It lowers productivity because we're rely, just relying on cheap labour. There's also a cultural question and a social question as well that needs to be addressed. And we cannot continue to be taking people, particularly young men, who indeed may find themselves uh, alienated within the society, forced to work in the in the black economy, and this can create a whole host of social issues going forward. We need to be alive to them. We need to be aware of what may happen. And the good thing that we have in this country would be indeed threatened by excessive immigration. And I'd say we passed that level where we indeed need to preserve what we have and enhance our our, our culture and enhance the prospects of those already here, rather than relying right. on those to come in and fill, fill jobs, fill positions, and indeed change the face of the, of the country, change the culture of the country from being one of being tolerant to one that may not be so, so tolerant. And of course, let's not just forget the pressure on public services yeah. and people indeed operating in a criminal environment in some cases. Well, that's right. Because, you know, we still don't know who a lot of these people are who are coming here illegally. We still don't know what they're coming here to do. Uh, they say that they're coming from certain countries. They say she's basically made the point that it's not good enough simply to say, you know, I fear persecution because I'm gay or because I'm a woman. Um, it doesn't necessarily follow that, therefore, we should suddenly grant asylum. You know, the lefties will all say, oh, but, you know, we have to take our fair share of the people fleeing war-torn countries. Well, why exactly? I mean, there's nothing written down in the British Constitution that we have to be some kind of, you know, island of sanctuary for people who want to come and live in a better country than the one they, they're born in. Well, these one size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Many of these people are indeed economic migrants. Right. And that's, that's the key issue. It's a pattern of migration across the world where predominantly young men are seeking employment opportunities abroad and a lot of the money they earn will be sent back home to their families, to their parents or their, or their wives back home. Of course, many of the young men don't, don't, aren't, don't have uh, married families as yet because of course, so they're free to free to travel free to take uh, opportunities and to and to better try and better their lives of course many will be put into the into the black black economy mm. but we've taken enough already we are an overcrowded island britain itself is overcrowded england itself is even more overcrowded when it comes to the uh, population density of a major country we have the highest level 
we cannot continue to put take in more people, build on the build on the build on the green belt, uh, put more ad adults into 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 schools, pretending pretending to be children as part of the of the immigration game they're playing. And of course, they've crossed safe countries to get here. Right. They've arrived in the European Union. They've travelled across many different European Union countries. Are are they saying that the European Union isn't acceptable for them to, to live in? Surely they can re remain in their country that they've arrived in, should they be genuine asylum seekers. But many are simply not. They're simply coming here to to work, to, to, to try and find some opportunity that they can't have in their home country. But that's actually damaging for the country of their origin because they're the best and they're, they're, they're the brightest, they're the most motivated. Perhaps they should be staying at home, building up their own country rather than coming here and lowering wages for the, for the, for the least well off. Yeah, exactly right. But when you also see what's going on in other parts of the world, uh, specifically in the United States, where the southern border with Mexico is now literally practically a war zone with so many people trying to break through uh, illegally and the, 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 the sort of the, the border guards fighting in vain to sort of stop them coming through. But I'm told now that there's reports from that part of the world that people from sub-Saharan Africa are coming through the Mexican border to get into America. So they're traveling somehow into Central and South America with the purposes of finding their way into the USA, which I find extraordinary. Plus, you see the numbers coming now from North Africa into places like Lampedusa in Italy. I mean, there is a global phenomenon going on here. Absolutely, yes, it's it's the same across the world. And in, in the United States, essentially, their immigration policy is being run by the cartels who are people smugglers, uh, as well as taking part in, in other criminal activities. But right. they, immigration, uh, illegal immigration, is indeed big criminal business right. for them. And they're, they're, dry, they're driving this. And some people in the United States are absolutely unwilling to tackle this problem. They could indeed seal the border. America is a powerful country. Uh, they, they have the resources, but some people are just making the country open to, to immigration, just as, in a sense, they are because they want the cheap labour. There is indeed a, a a desire for this amongst some quarters that want these business want biz, businesses wanting cheap labour to come into their country. And the bogus reasons for people's immigration, claiming that uh, oh that they that they may be children or claiming that they belong to some protected category and therefore they have the rights to come in is indeed bogus. Mm. We need to call them out on this. Well, exactly, because I don't believe anybody who tells me um, that these asylum seekers, uh, as they call themselves, illegal migrants, as I call them, coming into uh, to, to Dover on a small boat. I don't believe that they're coming here to contribute to our society. You know, they're coming here if they're going to work in, the, in, in, in any sort of situation. It's likely to be in very low-paid, low-skilled jobs. If they're going to bring family with them, eventually that's going to become a negative to the economy. They're not going to be paying enough tax to make it worth our while to even put them up for a couple of years, which is what's been going on as well. You know, so the economic um, dividend is nothing, if, if not negative. Indeed, what, what we need to do is we need to rep recognise the criminality of what's happening. Mm. That's partly being done. They're making um, legal entries into this country uh, an, an offence. But of course, they need to go further, they need to be returning migrants instead of having our authorities and the aid agencies and the RNLI essentially doing the job of the people smugglers for them. We need to be returning them. We need to patrol their waters properly. We need to be returning people to, to France or their or their country of origin ultimately. 
and of course going after those who are supplying the the, the, the dinghies which are incredibly dangerous to, to travel on uh, and and facilitating this we need a we need to treat it as a law enforcement and border security problem. That's the only way, and we need to tackle this as a criminal enterprise, which it is. Of course, some people are coming here for the very best reason. They may want to benefit their lives. Well, good, good for them, but they can do so somewhere else because, in a sense, Britain is overcrowded and Britain has enough uh, pressures at the moment. We have uh, a debt-to-GDP ratio that's around 100%. We're, we have problems here in this country. Our uh, interest payments on the, on the debt owed is higher than the education budget. Mm. Can't be afforded to be diverting resources unnecessarily away from where they're needed. Right. Um, but on, on the sheer numbers alone, though, um, it's unsustainable um, and it's going to cause huge problems for, for Italy. I mean, in, in Lampedusa, it's, it's, it's overwhelming uh, for such a small place. And apparently um, the Italian government is actually calling for some kind of uh, interregnum from NATO to try and block all these boats from coming because sometimes there's more than 5,000 in a day crossing. Well, yeah, indeed, this is how people are treating it in America. They call it an invasion mm. uh, the border security issue in the same similar language is being used in Italy. There is a level at which people's goodwill runs out. And we're at that point in, in the United Kingdom. There's gone beyond that point in Italy. So they need to be taking robust action and they need to be absolutely firm and returning people across the Mediterranean and stopping stopping the flow of people that would actually be beneficial for all concerned rather than taking thousands of people more migrants arriving in Lampedusa than there are actually residents that is absolutely unsustainable mm. and and a major problem and they need Italy certainly needs to be a lot tougher on this and those who are pushing this for their own reasons thinking that it's to the to the benefit of countries in terms of more migration or that somehow it's cultural enrichment that's absolutely uh, wrong and it's uh, they, could, they couldn't be more wrong because indeed we have a great culture in this country at the moment and we shouldn't be threatening it by by taking in those who may or may not share our values and the chances are if they're coming from some of these countries that are less successful than us although we've got problems less successful than us then of course we're endangering the good thing we have here Exactly right. Robert, good to talk to you. Thanks very much indeed. Robert Olds, director of the Bruges Group there, talking about what Suella Braverman said, why she said it, and why she's right, basically, to say it. And all of these people, including the Daily Mirror, getting the knickers in a twist about what she said, calling it all vile and cruel and poisonous and all the rest of it. Absolute rubbish. Complete and utter cobblers. Coming up, we're going to find out exactly what has been going on uh, over at HS2. Uh, we're hearing some pretty murky stories about the way the money is being spent like water over there at the project, which is going literally nowhere fast. This is Talk TV. Online, on DAB+, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Chris in Horsham says, Thank goodness HS2 bosses don't manufacture solar panels. Each one would have a warning sticker on it. Do not use in direct sunlight. Well, I think it would. I mean, because here's a question for you, and I don't even know the answer to it, but we'll be getting Joe Ventry on in a second from uh, Taxpayers Alliance. Have they actually got any trains that run on HS2. Have they got the trains? Are they still manufacturing the trains? I know they've built some track. I think they've built some track. I don't really know. Joe will know. Uh, he has the answer to all of these questions. Joe, very good morning to you. 
Good morning, Mike. Good to speak to you. Yeah, nice to have you on. Um, it's an extraordinary story, this HS2. I mean, we've been getting some incredible pieces of information from, from people who are associated with uh, companies working with them uh, or people who know people who work on the HS2 project. They seem to be pretty... Um, shall we say, uh, unrestricted in the way that they throw the money around. And people are claiming that, you know, uh, their company charges three times what they would be paid normally and it gets paid really no problem at all. People sitting around um, doing nothing because there's literally nothing to do. We found, found out today that there's loads of people on six-figure salaries doing God knows what. There isn't really anything to do. And, I mean, do you happen to know the answer to the question, have they got any trains? Frankly, I don't, but I think it seems like trains are lower down their list of priorities if you look at what's been going on at right. the corporation. I mean, you know, it seems to be all about, uh, you know, six-figure salaries and uh, these woke HR lessons and all these sorts of things. I think trains and train services seem to be way down the list of priorities. Yeah, exactly right. And it's incredible to see quite how much eye-watering salaries are being paid uh, to some of these people. I mean, you know, 250000 here, 300000 there. And phase one, uh, which is sort of supposedly nearly complete to Birmingham, um, is only really a third of what they were planning to do. So if it's going to end up costing 180 billion quid, I mean, that's just ridiculous, isn't it? It's absolutely ludicrous, Mike. You know, I think it's no secret at this point now that HS2 has completely fallen apart. I mean, we've seen the government's own body, the Infrastructure and Projects Authority, deem the entire project now to be unachievable. You know, that's the government's own body speaking at this point. Uh, we know that, you know, somewhere in the region of between 20 and 30 billion pounds has already been sunk into the project uh, with even more committed contractually. And I think what we all feel, you know, as taxpayers, when we see these huge salaries going to these people, it just adds insult to injury. I mean, in a lot of cases, it just feels like we're rewarding failure. And it just feels, you know, like, I, I feel like, why won't the Prime Minister have the guts at this point to pull the plug on this thing entirely and end this national embarrassment? Yeah, exactly right. But, I mean, where does it leave us, though? Because if they do, like, pull the plug on this kind of project, I imagine that the contractors will all be laughing all the way to the bank because they'll be getting paid for not having to finish the thing at all. And presumably they'll have all sorts of, um, you know, locked-in clauses that say that if the government pulls out of certain parts of it, that they must be paid the full amount and all the rest of it. So, I mean, it's the taxpayer, once again, sadly, that's getting uh, the rough end of the deal, isn't it? Well, this is the sad thing, Mike, as you say, you know, even if the Prime Minister were now to pull the plug on the thing and, and call it all quits, it wouldn't be like there wouldn't be more money to commit to this, sadly. Uh, the, the concern that I have, though, really, is if we just plough ahead with this project and say, yep, you know, we're already 20 or 30 billion pounds in, that we're going to end up falling for the sunk cost fallacy. I mean, we're seeing some projections saying that this project in its entirety could end up costing 180 billion pounds. So there is potentially a lot more money that could be lost here. And I think what the government needs to do really is just have the, you know, have the, the nerve to sort of look at this again and really, uh, you know, be able to commit the money that uh, that needs to be sort of deserved by taxpayers. Right. And, you know, I think a lot of these things could be repurposed, frankly. We're seeing industry leaders saying these sorts of things, that these, you know, the tunnels that could be built, the infrastructure that's already there could be repurposed for other things. So right. it's not to say that the project could be entirely lost, but I think not falling for that sunk cost fallacy and sinking more and more money into this is the priority that needs to be looked at. It certainly would appear that, uh, you know, um, from what people in the north of the country are saying, you know, the money would have been a lot better spent just connecting more of the northern cities to each other rather than worrying about connecting them all to Birmingham. 
well, this is it, you know, and the Taxpayers Alliance, we go around the country quite a lot talking to people and talking to people about their concerns. Yeah. And what we've found consistently through the entirety of HS2 is that people don't want this grand train that runs to London and, you know, shaves half an hour off that journey. What they want to see is their local infrastructure improved, you know, much less grandiose projects for politicians to lord over, but real services that matter to people and to sort of interconnect those towns in, in parts of our regions. I mean, what we previously found was that for the projected cost at the time, which I believe was around £50 billion, you could have uh, completed around 28 other different infrastructure projects around the country, which would have really mattered to people. Right. Uh, so you think that's still a possibility now that the government could and should be looking at? And one of the things that was said yesterday was that Rishi Sunak was appalled and incredibly surprised to see how much profligate that the executives of HS2 had been with, with public money. But I was told as well that actually they can't pay for anything, they can't sign off anything without it getting uh, double-checked by the Treasury. So... I, shouldn't, I don't think it should have been a surprise to Rishi Sunak that they were spending money the way they have been. Um, he should have been on top of that from the beginning, shouldn't he? Well, absolutely. I think he's the last person to be surprised, Mike. You know, we've been seeing this for years, the way that money's been shoveled out the door with these huge salaries, you know, massive contractual fees, which, frankly, you just wouldn't see in the private sector. And, of course, I think one of the really shocking things to come out recently, of course, is these HR practices that have been pursued, these sort of mindless, uh, woke projects that HS2 Limited have found themselves engaged in yeah. as the project has been going further and further down the tube. I mean, we're looking at things like in, in their recent diversity and inclusion report, uh, you know, looking at the sexual orientations of their departments, uh, looking at, you know, hitting targets for hiring less white people. I mean, you think this fundamentally is supposed to be a railway project. Right. This is supposed to be delivering a train line. Right. And yet they've got so far and far away from their objectives that this is where we're at. And we're looking at, you know, we, we're looking at a train line which we don't know where it's going to begin or where it's going to end. Right. It's ridiculous. And so far we don't know if we've got any trains. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All we know is that the shovel's in the ground. That's all right. we ever hear is the Incredible. shovel's in the ground. Absolutely extraordinary. Joe, thanks very much indeed. Joe Venture there, Digital Campaign Manager at Taxpayers Alliance. It's extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, we can't seem to manage these projects very well. If they were building this in almost any other country in the world, it would be done by now. They started doing it like a decade ago, didn't they? Or maybe even longer. But yet we don't know if we've got any trains. We don't know when it's likely to be possible to travel on said train. We don't know how far the lines have gone. We don't know whether the lines have actually been made ready for train transportation, even if they only do go to Birmingham. We don't seem to have a clue as to when everything will be done. I mean, it's ridiculous. £180 billion pounds later, what have they spent it on? What the hell are they doing? This is Talk TV. Nationwide, by your side, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Good afternoon and welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. This is, of course, the one place to be for the truth, the whole truth. And you guessed it, nothing but the truth. And we're going to be peeking around all sorts of corners coming up in this last hour of the show. Uh, we're going to be talking about, of course, yet again, why we were right to say that lockdowns were the wrong idea, to say that schools being shut were the wrong idea, to say that children being harmed was a bad thing, to say that children being harmed could have been prevented. We said all of that uh, with the help of a lot of other great guests on this show and on this station, as we have done for you 
for the last several years, right? We've been around a long time uh, here. Now we're at Talk TV. We intend to continue that mission because that is the mission that everybody is respecting and that everybody is expecting because we should be here to be the voice for people who don't have a voice. We should be here to ask the right questions of government. We should be here to say to government, no, that's not what we want. That's not what we voted for. That's not what we asked for. And we're not doing it. Simple as that. You know, you see a lot of people at the moment talking about COVID again. Uh, we've got the air traffic control uh, problem at the moment at Gatwick Airport, apparently, because a lot of people are off sick with COVID. Get on with it. Sort your lives out. Get to grips with it. We've also got a massive problem here in a part of London called Tower Hamlets. It's a part of East London, not a million miles away from uh, Tower Bridge, right here where we're uh, broadcasting from at Talk TV, where they've got giant rats running around um, willy-nilly because they haven't emptied the bins for two weeks. That's right. The bin men are on strike. I wonder why. Probably because they want more money. Probably because they don't like emptying bins. But the bins are a social problem. The bins are now a health problem. And people are literally, you know, fainting on the streets as they see the number of rats running around. It's absolutely horrendous. But before we do any of that, uh, let's go back to the Daily Telegraph. The Daily Telegraph, which has done some pretty good work lately, uh, have got a splash this morning in which it says lockdown damage to children was preventable. This has come uh, from the Children's Rights Organisations Alliance, and that includes um, Save the Children, Just for Kids Laws and the Children's Rights Alliance for England. Now, it's all very well that they're saying that some of this lockdown damage to children was preventable. But let's talk to Molly Kingsley now, uh, who's been on this subject really for as long as I can remember there was a lockdown. Uh, She's with us for them. And like us, they were talking about this at the time, saying this is preventable. It shouldn't be being done. It's harming our children. Why were these children's organisations not following us in that time? Molly, very good afternoon to you. Good afternoon, Mike. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I mean, that was the first question I thought of this morning. You know, it's all very well them saying, you know, this shouldn't have been done. It was preventable. You know, they should have taken a different path. Well, where were they two years ago? Yeah, quite. Three years ago now, Mike. Was it three? Blimey, I've lost, literally, I've lost all track of time. I can't remember what I did in those three years, to be honest. Well, I know. And actually, it's quite a serious point because, of course, three years is a really long period in a child's life. And, uh, you know, not all of those three years, but kids would have been seriously disrupted for two, you know, good portion of two out of three years, in large part because the kinds of organisations that have, you know, great, they've they've grouped together to release this report as part of the COVID inquiry. And of course, you know, that's good. But as you say, where were they? Because, as we know, it was left to a cripplingly small number of us, yourself included, my, you know, me and my colleagues at us for them, a few, very few other journalists and very brave professionals, people like Ellen Townsend, to group together and to try and say in the spring of 2020, when it could have made a difference, this is wrong, we shouldn't be closing schools, we should not be closing down children's lives. And we weren't only ignored, we were vilified. So, you know, it's really bittersweet to see these charities, some of whom we wrote to at the time, begging, Mike, begging for help. You know, when we set up us for them, we were three volunteers. So sounding angry, but I am angry. Good. No, the reason, listen, we're all angry. The reason we had success at the time with with convincing people we were right, in the end, we, we now know we were right, is because we were angry. We still are. Why not? Well, we, I think we have a right to be angry because, you know, so many children were let down. I mean, one of the um, more grim details, actually, in this report is there are five million children now whose speech and language is behind where it should be. Mm. That figure has increased dramatically during the pandemic. Five million 
There's only 10 million kids in England. Right. So what? One half of children are now not speaking and communicating as they should be. What does that look like, not only for those children, but for our society 20 years down the line, when half our adults miss out on vital speech and language mm. skills? Exactly. And look at what happened in the university sector as well, because we were told that, you know, the kids who were sort of given a mark for their A-levels because nobody could be bothered to actually examine them properly because they hadn't really been doing any proper schoolwork, they gave them a mark which enabled them to get into university universities an awful lot of them are now dropping out of university because they didn't actually really learn enough in the schools in the in the a-level uh, curriculum and they're now struggling to keep up at university level so they've just gone we don't know enough stuff we're leaving yeah i think this is right and i th you know in truth the impact across the education system so from the early years obviously through schools and universities has just been dire and i think one of the aspects of that is this degrading of education. Now, we've heard a lot about it in schools or for mm. the school age children. And I think we felt actually that there was often a dis to the extent there was focus on kids. It was often disproportionately actually on odd word to use because kids needed attention and they needed a spotlight on them. But actually, the, the attention such as there was was on school age kids right. and actually nursery children and university students who in different ways were just as vulnerable, particularly actually these uni kids, many of whom who had left home for the first time and were plunged into this routine of isolation and remote learning, of course, they were very vulnerable during that time. And it's no surprise to see so many of them drop out. It's been catastrophic mm. for that cohort of students. Yeah, absolutely right. And again, you know, one of my kids was, was, uh, was kind of going through um, his secondary school sort of formative years uh, and as you say for that for that sort of up until June of, of this year uh, before we went into the sixth form for, for the three years previous there had been some form of disruption or other you know for more or less an entire year didn't go to school at all it was and it definitely affected it you know I think that's well and I think the other thing here particularly for the uni students is it's disruption but actually we forced their lives onto screens and I think we're beginning a little bit more to understand the really dire consequences of that because you can't force children's lives onto screens and expect them to be okay. Right. And then, okay, there's a million children now on waiting lists for specialist mental health help. Right. I mean, that's another appalling statistic. But yeah, we need to be giving a very clear message that schools should not be switching to remote, that university students need to be learning you know, in halls, in universities, in lectures. Right. So that actually hybrid model, I mean, it may work for the university lecturers sure as hell isn't working for the students no and we heard the dreaded remote learning uh, phrase once again didn't we a couple of weeks back when the concrete problem suddenly arose out of nowhere and suddenly all sorts of schools were being shut down even though nobody knew why and we're kind of going oh it's fine don't worry we'll just go back to remote learning and i was going no. sorry don't do that just don't no, just don't. And, you know, I don't think anyone is seriously suggesting here the answer is to have concrete falling on children's heads either. But I agree, I agree with you. Why have we brought in remote as an acceptable substitute? It isn't. And, you know, why couldn't we have been using portable? I think in the end they did actually use portable yeah. classroom kind of makeshift rooms. But the kids need to be together. They need right. to be in person. We've learned one thing from the pandemic. It is, it is that school is essential right, and right will not be closed again. Actually, one of the recommendations, you know, credit where credit is due. This report does have some sensible recommendations. I think it's got a couple of are very weak, actually, yeah. as well. But the two that I think are sensible is 
for there to be a senior level children's minister. That is essential. Never should have got rid of that position. We need someone across government departments with responsibility for children. Mm. Um, and that person needs to be a senior cabinet minister. And the other thing is we need schools to be designated essential infrastructure and they need to be almost unclosable you know you can all envisage limited situations in which it might be appropriate to close schools for a very short amount of time but the default needs to be you can't do that at least with not a super majority of parliamentarians agreeing it is the right thing to do exactly but of course the difficulty is that when you dig right into it and i'm sure you've done all of this and and i'm not i'm preaching to the converted but an awful lot of the schools were given the choice you know and many schools did remain open for what they regarded as key workers children and they did remain open sometimes um quite often uh, we're talking to to uh, serge kefai one of the head headmasters of a london school and he was of the view that you know kids especially vulnerable kids needed to be in school because they weren't safe at home practically you know and so he had an almost full con- complement of kids at his school as many as he could possibly get in there so you know the government were kind of slightly lackadaisical i think in kind of not quite taking responsibility. They didn't actually physically shut any schools, but they kind of recommended that the schools should shut. Do you know what I mean? I know exactly what you mean. I mean, I think particularly in the first lockdown, the government, although it was cast for legal reasons as a very strongly worded recommendation, I think to all intents and purposes, mm. schools were closed. They were technically open for vulnerable vulnerable kids. In the first lockdown, only 2% of all children were in school. The government had expected it to be much higher. Yeah. That number did then improve. Mm. But I think for most parents who, you know, weren't key workers, who didn't have vulnerable children, you know, I think when someone suggests, oh, well, schools were open, I think it elicits a very negative reaction because actually that wasn't the reality for the majority of children or parents. Right. right. And of course, since then as well, we've had the problem with the teachers' strikes. I'm not quite sure where we are. I'm so confused about all the people that are striking at the moment. I'm not quite sure whether they're still on strike or occasionally doing some kind of settlement. But, you know, that was another problem that a lot, an awful lot of schools went, well, we're just going to shut the school because we don't know how many teachers are going to go on strike. Don't worry. So it's given them this kind of um, impetus, if you like, to shut a school because they've done it before, so we can do it again. I, exactly, and we didn't we have schools being shut shut because there was a heat wave yeah. at one point. Well, I mean, you know, we've we've opened the floodgates really mm. to this stop start schooling, right. and the impact of that on children's motivation. I mean, there was a report I don't know if you saw out today from the Education Select Committee. That report says that twenty two point five percent of kids are now persistently absent. Right. That is over one in five it's kids. Huge, isn't it? It, it's it, it's really really terrible actually and the problem is we haven't got any this report acknowledges this Mm. there's not a hope in hell of correcting this problem when actually teachers and schools and government are giving this very mixed message about the primacy or otherwise of schooling right and can i just ask a question about the covid inquiry while we're here Uh, because Mm. if this report could be produced published finished now why could we not have something from the covid inquiry who haven't even yet told us when they're going to be talking about children. No, I know. I mean, and let's not forget that originally the COVID inquiry didn't include the word child Mm. in it, which I think says a lot about their priorities. I mean, 
it's really abysmal that kids, I mean, I think the earliest now, children will be looked at by the inquiries 2025. I mean, you know, the kids that were in primary school, you know, one of my kids included during yeah. the pandemic will be in secondary school. The kids that were in secondary school will have left school. Yeah. It's far, far, it goes back to what we were saying at the beginning, mm. actually. Children do not have half a decade, a decade to mess around with this. They need answers and they need solutions now. And, it, you know, that the answers and the solutions, though, Mike, are not going to come from the COVID inquiry. I don't believe that at this point. Mm. So I think for those of us campaigning and advocating for children, I think it is a very clear message, you know, get on with it because you're not going to be able to wait for the COVID inquiry right. because it's far, far too slow. Exactly right. Molly, great to talk to you as ever. Thanks very much indeed. Molly Kingsley, co-founder of Us For Them. Still angry, quite rightfully, by, by the way, angry, because being angry is a good thing, not all the time, but at the right time. And that's what we do here at Talk TV. We're going to take some calls. We're going to go down to Croydon and get the latest from uh, there, where a 15-year-old girl was stabbed to death this morning. A terrible, terrible situation. We'll bring you up to date with that. Plus, we're going to find out about those rats, giant rats, somewhere in East London, coming for you. This is Talk TV. Online, on DAB+, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Good afternoon and welcome back to the Independent Republican Mike Graham right here uh, on Talk TV. Much to do in the last half hour of the show. Ian Collins coming up at one o'clock. He'll be in just before that to tell us what's going on on his show. Paul Scully's going to join us shortly. Um, Minister for London, he's going to talk to us about why Tower Hamlets has got a problem with its rubbish. Rubbish all over the streets, food all over the streets, horrible mess, horrible stink, horrible rats. It's really gone to the dogs, you'd have to say. It's not far from the Isle of Dogs either. Uh, I think for Isle of Dogs might even be in Tower Hamlets, but that's another story. Uh, before we do that, though, it's time for this. The World of Woke. Now, you might think that football is a good thing. You might think that children playing football is also a good thing. You might think that taking exercise... It's pretty woke, actually, because the more exercise you do, the more the wokists will like it because they'll say, good for you. You're not going to cost the NHS any money because you're keeping fit. That's what they sometimes say. But up in Merseyside, Sefton Council doesn't agree. In Merseyside and in Sefton Council, they think playing football is bad. Why? Because they don't like heavy leather balls. Now, I don't know about you, but my kids have got a lot of footballs. They've got the garden is literally rammed full of them. Footballs nowadays are not heavy. They're not really, really hard at all. You should try and play football with some of the footballs we used to play with uh, when I was a kid. When you got hit by one of those when it was wet, blimey, you certainly knew. But now, these balls that we play with, uh, that the kids play with, are very light. They're very lightweight. But apparently, there was a notice put up, uh, a community protection notice, uh, notice was put up in a local sort of playing field where kids were playing in which it said that basically a large number of complaints have been raised by neighbours uh, and the notice barred pupils from this school from using heavy leather footballs. Right? They basically said you must only play with light flyaway or foam footballs. Well, you can't play with a foam football outdoors. A foam football is what you play with when you're playing indoors so you don't break anything. For heaven's sake, let them play with proper footballs, right? Kids being banned from playing football by local council. I mean, can you get any more woke than that? Absolutely ridiculous. No doubt they'll say, well, you can't have a football made out of leather because we're vegan and we don't want you to be using anything like that. Vegan footballs. Can you imagine? Plastic footballs. Not very woke, is it? 
using plastic, not good for the environment, that kind of thing. It's just a mad story. So that's why I had to bring it to you on The World of Woke. The World of Woke. Scott in Rotherham says, Suella would make a great prime minister. She's the only politician with the balls to say what most of the country is actually thinking. And I think if she stood, she would blow a Mr. Starman out of the water and dishy-rishy too. Well, you never know. There are some people who think she is positioning herself for that kind of eventuality. We shall see. But let's talk to Paul Scully, MP, Minister for London, because it turns out that uh, there's a part of London uh, which is in a terrible mess, a stinking mess, you might say, because there's a bin strike that's been going on for a couple of weeks and the streets are literally covered with rubbish, overflowing bins, you know, nastiness spreading about all over the place, rats everywhere. People are complaining that they see more rats now than they've ever seen uh, in their whole time living in Tower Hamlets, which is a place just a little bit east of here uh, from uh, the Tower Bridge. Paul, a very good afternoon to you. Thanks for joining us. Afternoon to you. Good to see you, Mike. So what's this? I mean, I'm assuming that the bins are, are on strike because they want more money. I know sometimes they've um, outsourced this. If it's a local council, they'll sometimes hire a private company to do it. What's the situation? Yeah, so from my understanding, look, as I say, you know, I'm a government minister. This is done at a council level. And what you have, uh, my understanding of it, is you've got the National Joint Council, which is a group of local government um, uh, representatives that work to do a national uh, bargaining uh, agreement with the unions. And um, But it's been a particular issue in Tower Hamlets where they've gone out on strike. Um, and... Because there's so many food um, places in Tower Hamlets, it's well known for its curry houses, etc. A lot of food waste there, a lot of businesses have been affected. And so over the last eight, nine days, since they've been on the strike, this has just piled up hugely. Yeah. And so it's really good that they've reached a resolution. But boy, have they got a lot to clear up. And it just goes to show what happens when people just, you know, the unions just double down on this and the councils aren't speaking to them properly as well. Well, that's the problem, isn't it? Because now we're getting people telling us that there are rats everywhere, um, that there's a sort of public health issue now because of all the, you know, it's not been that cool either. So it's been quite warm. Um, and the rubbish is basically just sort of strewn everywhere. And I'm old, I'm old enough to remember uh, the, the great strikes of the 1970s when Leicester Square was just a giant heap of black bags and rats. It was disgusting. And it must be awful for people who live there. Absolutely. Look, I used to be a councillor and I know from a, a, a councillor, elected councillor, rule number one is never mess with people's bin collections. Yeah. It's one of the things you do as a council, but it's the probably the most visible thing that a councillor can do is just making sure that the bins are collected. Um, and when it gets to this state, when you've got six foot high piles of rubbish, when you've got rats running around the place, not only does it affect the residents, the smell, the, the horrible nature of it, and then you start to attract antisocial behaviour because people just don't take any pride in their area. And of course the businesses are affected. And so people visit Tower Hamlets, especially places like Brick Lane, uh, for their experience. Are they gonna come a second time if they see all that? Of course mm. they're not. So it's really important that they do resolve it and clean it up as quickly as possible. Absolutely. So what's the absolute sort of what you're understanding to be anyway of, of, of the resolution? Are they going to be back out on the streets today, tomorrow? Yeah. So what I understand is that they've come up to come up with an agreement between Tower Hamlets Council and United Union um, at a local level. And then they're going to have the, the binmen coming back. I think they're going to still likely need private contractors as they've be, been trying to use private contractors to stem the... Uh, the problem keep mm. the problem on the lid a bit 
but it's going to take a while because there's so much there. Right. And so this just that need, needs to be sorted ASAP. You need right. to really prioritise that. Yeah. So I mean, it could well be a pretty stinky a place for a few days. A little while. Yeah. Exactly that. Exactly that. And of course, so all those businesses in particular are going to be really suffering because people aren't going to come back. Yeah. So and also, if you're just really in a pr private household or if a block of flats or something, what are you supposed to do with your rubbish? You can't just well, chuck it out on the street, can you? And that's what starts to happen. The longer you leave it, people just say, you know what, well, there's a load of rubbish there, I'll just add my yeah. bit to it. And you get fly tipping, you get all sorts of problems. That's why the county now have got, now they've resolved it, they've got to keep the grip and just get in and sort it out and clean the mess up. Right. Because, I mean, the worry, of course, is somebody gets bitten by one of these rats or your dog gets bitten by one of these rats because they're huge, these rats. I've seen them in, uh, uh, there was a, a, a town in, in Wales, I think, there was down in Bristol, they, they had these sort of giant rats. I mean, because once you give, give them enough food, they just keep eating. Well, I love your title, giant rat, your subtitle, giant rats, <laughs> relish uh, six foot. I, I haven't seen those rat, rats, but uh, look, I think they always say, don't they, in London, that you're never that far away from Seven them, feet, that, apparently, right? Exactly, but you see other parts of London where you wouldn't know because it's tidy, it's kept well, the rubbish is um, collected regularly. People take a pride in their area and yeah. keep their own area um, uh, right if it's if, if it's looked after by the council as well. That's clearly fallen way by the wayside yeah. in this instance. Right, and, and just before I let you go, Paul, I must ask you about this terrible incident this morning in Croydon. Um, yeah. where a young woman, a young girl, has had her life ended, a 15-year-old girl, on her way to school, stabbed to death. I mean, if this does not, I mean, in any way change the policies of Sadiq Khan and the way that the, 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 the place is being run uh, and the, and the anti-knife crime sort of, you know, pursuits, I don't know what will. Yeah, absolutely. It's so heartbreaking to hear yet another um, example of a young life lost mm. way, way, way yeah. too too soon and I'll be thinking about her family and yeah. all her friends that uh, uh, um, they'll be paying tribute to and, and um, you know in sorrow today but we've got to get a grip with knife crime mm. you, you've got a, that strand of work with the Met Police that's still in special measures you've got to give Mark Rody the tools to do the job to sort out to make sure that police can get onto those fundamental things the mayor himself has got to stop just sort of um, uh, virtue signaling and yeah. really as, as our de facto police commissioner Get a grip and realise that knife crime, not only is it ending people's lives, it's taking people who's got the, the knife in their hand and, and ending their life in many ways because they'll yeah. be put in prison and criminal records, etc. And you've got to stem it at a young age to make sure people don't pick yeah. that knife up in the first place. It's like, you know, you say, I mean, it's like you've got to change the, the thought process, haven't you? Somehow change that culture that makes these young people think that carrying a knife is a good idea. It's really complex, but you start, but you know, work backwards. First of all, stop and search, get those things right, get have a deterrent, have strong sentencing mm. to make sure that people aren't picking up the knives. But yes, you've got to go back further than that. It's not just that easy, exactly to try and change minds at a young age. Primary school, really, yeah. is you know, by the time you get to secondary school, and definitely by the time someone's picked up a knife, way too late. Right. You've got to get into young people's minds that. Easy options, getting into drugs, getting into gang culture and things like that. They may be offering you something, but boy, there is no future for you there. No, exactly right. Paul, good to talk to you. Thanks very much indeed. Paul Scully, uh, Minister for London, uh, MP, of course, for the Tory party as well. Um, a man that would make a great mayor, actually, uh, of this city, uh, because something is surely going to have to now be done, because it's not good enough to just keep saying, oh, knife crime statistics are terrible, knife crime's going up, there's thousands and thousands of cases every single year. A young girl, a 15-year-old teenage girl, has been stabbed to death this morning at 8.30. She was on her way to school. I mean, what more do you need to know? That's it. 
and it's time, surely, that this awful, awful carnage ends. Sadiq Khan needs to make that happen. This is Talk TV. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.